Hello folks, welcome to this new podcast, the April 2016 edition. As you can probably tell by my sore throat, I've not been at all well this week. In fact, I'm only just about getting my voice back. But at least I've discovered eating a whole package of strepsils at once does indeed numb a barbed wire throat, whilst having the added advantage of making the mother-in-law's cooking taste okay. (laughs) You can't beat a good old Les Dawson type joke, can you? (laughs) I've been off food and drink all week, which means now I'm absolutely starving, about five or six days into it. But in the pursuit of medical research tonight, I've discovered the eighth tube of Pringles isn't quite as addictive as the first seven. Anyway, that all said, and despite it being April, whatever it is I'm suffering with is making me absolutely freezing, and then, maybe about 20 minutes later, absolutely roasting. Consequently, despite it being the beginning of April, I'm going to light a log fire. And in fact, because I don't seem to have all that much strength, I'm recording this podcast in the house, rather than in my soundproof studio. So, I dare say the quality isn't going to be anything like as good. And if you're listening to this on headphones, you're bound to pick up the sound of traffic going by, although not very much, because it's the evening time. But that said, you're bound to pick up the sound of planes going overhead. It's never very good recording in the house. Certainly not for professional use. But seeing as this podcast isn't really for professional use, I thought and hoped you wouldn't mind. So don't write in complaining about all the background noise. Instead, write in praising me for soldiering on like a true trooper. Anyway, that seems to be the fire lit. Although all the kindling I've put on the top does seem to be spitting and cracking. Never mind, it's going to keep me warm and hopefully keep this chill out of me. And with it being a Saturday night and I've not really eaten or drunk all week, glasses of water seem to have kept me going, I'm going to have a beer. So for all you discerning beer drinkers, see if you can guess what type of beer this is. I'd be surprised if you could. Though a friend of mine swears he can tell. He's a bloody liar of course. (laughs) Every time I say that to him, he says, Oh, and then put it to the test. And so, 11 bottles later, and not one of them got right, he says, Yep, you're right then. I can't tell. Let's try again tomorrow. The bastard. (laughs) I always fall for it. Anyway, as you know, the clocks moved forward at the beginning of April, and I suppose British summertime has now officially begun, although my shivers tell me the opposite. I like it when the clocks move forward, not because it's lighter in the morning or in the evening or whatever. It's because you'll hear people say, I can get so much more done. No, you can't. Your clock now doesn't indicate a day lasts 25 hours. It's an excuse. You didn't get as much done because you couldn't be bothered before. It makes as much sense as saying, I bought a £5,000 Rolex watch. What a waste. All that money, and it's no faster than a cheap Timex. I like those sorts of people, really. You know, those that make claims without thinking. I used to meet quite a few of them on the trail from Stretton down to Walton Reservoir. I don't know if you know it, 
the trail is many centuries old. It's part of the right-of-way that leads from the golf course gates on London Road in Appleton, across their grounds and emerging into the fields that lead down to the reservoir at Walton. Though you can't use that ancient right-of-way now, despite it still being on OS maps. And the reason for this, I understand, is because it would mean you now walk along the new, long driveway of an important large house that dominates the view between the outer fringes of the golf course and the fields that sway with hay and buzz with the sound of bees in the summer breeze as you walk the same path that folk from round there have walked for centuries. In fact, now, if you do use the golf course right-of-way, you have to reverse your steps once you reach the edge of the golf club and then walk up London Road, turning right at Owens Corner and then walking for a further 10, maybe 15 minutes to get where you were 30 or 40 minutes earlier. Anyway, why am I rambling about rambling like this? Well, it's because you meet those sorts of people that make odd, or shall we say, selfish points. I can't tell you the amount of times I used to walk down there across to Walton Reservoir, although, to be fair, we never always got that far. When my daughters were first born, I used to walk down that way, taking them with us. They absolutely loved it. But, occasionally, and understandably, it's not their fault, we would meet other people walking their dog. Now, I've got nothing against dogs. I love them. But I do think that if you've not got your dog on a lead, and it goes bounding up to three-year-old kids, shouting, Don't worry, wouldn't hurt a flea, then I think you're a moron. So there. And when I try to shield my eldest daughter because she's got an absolute phobia about dogs, no reason. She hasn't been bitten by one. It's just a phobia. Some people don't like certain things. I absolutely hate heights. I've never fallen. You would think I would hate water more, seeing as I've nearly drowned a couple of times. But I absolutely hate heights. I get dizzy on a doormat, as they say. There's no reason for it. It's a phobia. My daughter has a phobia of dogs. And certainly dogs that run at her when she's only a couple of feet tall, at that time anyway, by an Alsatian or a bulldog. And it's no good the owner shouting, it wouldn't hurt a flea, because that isn't going to solve the problem of my daughter's phobia. You moron. Now, of course, whenever I talk to people about such things, dog owners in particular, they always say the same sort of thing. Oh, bring her round to see us. She'd love my dog. No, she wouldn't. She's got a phobia. Oh, she'd love our dog. Oh, my dog's beautiful. Wouldn't hurt a flea. She's got a phobia. One friend in particular, like me, doesn't like heights and refuses to fly. It would be like me saying to him, Oh, you've never been in my plane. You'd love my plane. <laughs> I think you get the... <laughs> my throat's killing me, by the way. But I'm not sure I can eat any more strepsils. Anyway, let's push on. Though I think I will get myself another beer. That last one seemed to have cooled my throat down. And in fact, seeing as that fire's been lit for about well, however long it's been, I'm warming up a little. The temperature coming off my fire is roaring harder than a lion in heat. Come on, that's clearly nearly a clever sentence. Mixing a couple of metaphors together there.
Okay, Simon. Over in Australia land. See if you can guess what this one is. I'll tell you what, I'll give you a clue. It's one of your favourites. And I think you told me it costs, was it 10 or 9 quid or something like that over there? Nice and cheap over here. <laughs> £1.25. <laughs> All praise Aldi. <laughs> Do you know, when people complained about Stockton Heath getting an Aldi, brilliant. <laughs> cheap beer. Can you hear that? Lovely. You drink your Australian wine. <laughs> it's for medicinal purposes, as they say. Pretty rough sore throat at the moment. Got to get rid of this barbed wire. <coughs> I can't even speak. Got to get rid of this barbed wire somehow. And once again, apologies for the sound quality. Not just from my voice, but having to record in the house. I've really not got the energy to walk the six feet to my studio door from my back door. Getting back to my walks down the lane, the magic lane, from Owen's Corner down to Walton Reservoir. If you know it, you'll be aware that, at certain points along the walk, despite its outstanding beauty, in the distance a few miles away, you can see one of the most dominant features of the Warrington skyline. Though when I say Warrington, not quite Warrington. In fact, I think officially it's within the Widnes boundary, Fiddler's Ferry. I've got a bit of a connection with Fiddler's Ferry in that my granddad used to work there. Picking up and walking along that right of way that's been there for centuries, down towards Walton. Occasionally, you'll see those coal-powered cooling towers rising in the horizon. I love the incongruity of the name Fiddler's Ferry, with all its romantic suggestions of a small foot passenger ferry that traversed the water whilst a fiddler played you a tune. That's the romanticised view. The actual physical view is, as you know, very different. And as I say, I have a connection with Fiddler's Ferry in that my granddad worked there for many years when it first opened up in 1971, though it only came into full operation in 1973. There are eight towers, 374 feet high, with an adjacent chimney of 660 feet, and can be seen apparently from the Pennines and the Peak District though I'm not sure from that distance, on January the 13th, 1984, that you would have been able to see that one of the cooling towers collapsed. It has since been rebuilt, though today, literally today, I suspect some of the workers are thinking what was the point. When Fiddler's Ferry was first operating, it burned coal mined in South Yorkshire, and then transported across the Pennines on the Manchester-Sheffield Electric Railway. Today, though, all the coal is imported. So just remind me, why were our coal mines closed down? Fiddler's Ferry burns 16,000 tonnes of coal per day. Every day. Though, now, I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm not even sure what my view is. But three of the four units will be closed by the beginning of April this year i.e. it's probably closed now for all I know. 
the Department of Energy and Climate Change stated that all the UK's remaining coal-fired power stations were to close completely by 2025 and restricted by 2023. Now, I don't know if that's good or if that's bad, global warming and all that. I probably think it's a good thing, though I don't work there, do I? What are those people supposed to do? I think about my granddad. What would he have done? And now, today, three quarters of the units have closed down. I don't know what the answer is. Northern powerhouse, indeed. Fiddler's Ferry, northern quarter powerhouse. Once it's gone, it's gone. You can't rebuild things. That's what people say. I'm not sure I agree. Maybe that rebuilt fallen cooling tower means you can, if you want it. Anyway, did you know Penketh has the distinction of having a character mentioned by Shakespeare in his play Richard III? Thomas Penketh was one of the most respected scholars of his day, which of course was Shakespeare's day, though I confess I don't know Richard III. I do like Shakespeare, though I've never taught Richard III when I was teaching years ago. I'll have to dig it out. I'm sure it's okay. Though I suppose in this EU referendum modern world, today Shakespeare would call him Richard the 0.3. Come on, that's a good joke. It's as good a joke as the, um, what's that film? Life of Pi, that's it. I'm one of those people who never actually get round to watching films when they first come out, tending to prefer to buy the DVD later. Does that make me antisocial? In fact, the DVD I got was in 3D. Oh, I suppose watching Life of Pi would have been better in 3.14825371D. Come on, that's another good joke. <laughs> Do you know, if my daughters ever listen to these podcasts, which they don't, but I'm sure maybe in 10 years' time, 15 years' time, they'll be listening to this thinking, oh my God, you didn't make those jokes, did you? I'm afraid I did. <laughs> Anyway, let's get back to Fiddler's Ferry. I think you can see those cooling towers from almost any place elevated enough, around Warrington and certainly over towards Runcorn and Widnes. Despite the concrete monstrosity of Fiddler's Ferry, the power station, it is quite a romantic, peaceful area that not really that many people, certainly from the south side of Warrington, ever go to visit. I can't recommend it enough. Well, I could for a fee, if Warrington Council wants to sponsor me. Anyway, what do we know about the area? Beyond the ancient and agricultural farming hamlets of Sankey and Penketh, the River Mersey lapped its way along the flat expanses of riverside marshes around the remote Curdley. To be honest, I don't really know Curdley. I think I did know somebody, though, when I used to work over that way, from a place called, I think it was called Curdley Cross or something like that. You might know it. Well, in the past... This desolate landscape was like this for many centuries, until the late 18th century, when a canal cut its way through those remote marshes down to Fiddler's Ferry, where a small boat traversed the expanse of water for a fee. Now, there is a good deal of argument that surrounds the origin of the name of the ferry. Some say it's named after the former landlord of the pub named Fiddler. Other people say a fiddler accompanied passengers on that crossing, though I suggest most plausibly is it derives from the name Adam Le Villeur. I bet I've not pronounced that properly. 
He was the original grantee of the Manor of Penka, and it's an easy step to make. Vileur can easily be construed as viola, a player off the viola or fiddle. As I say, that's probably the most plausible explanation, but I think I prefer the second one. A fiddler accompanying you, trying to distract you, as you make what is still a perilous crossing across the Mersey, from the north bank to the south bank, over towards Moore and Darlesbury. My grandad's been dead for decades, but I still remember him saying every now and again, go to Fiddler's Ferry, about somebody he didn't like. I had absolutely no idea what he meant. Far as I knew, he worked there. Why was he telling people to go to where he worked? Well, I've since found out, go to Fiddler's Ferry, though fallen out of favour today, used to be a polite way of consigning someone to hell. And thinking about the word penketh and where that word comes from, well, it's a compound of the Celtic words pen, meaning end or edge or top, and coid, meaning wood. If you've ever lived in Wales or nearabouts, the name coid is common. It's also found in Cornwall and Brittany. It means the end or edge of the wood. In 1762, the Ferry Inn became the first licensed public house in Penketh and was derelict and partly destroyed by fire between 1990 and 1992. It was then it changed its name to the Ferry Tavern when it reopened in 1993. On the Ferry Inn's website, I found an article which I thought I would read out to you, simply because there's no way I could have written anything quite as good as this, evoking the area. It was written by somebody called Colin Mason. I don't know who he is, but it certainly reads well. Have a listen. The solitude of the place is what is most striking and entirely in keeping with the shrill cries of the curlew and gentle monotonous lapping of the mighty river only feet away. Tired of the city, there have been times when I have craved this sort of quiet oneness with nature in the roar, on the marsh, with the salty air rushing eastwards from the Irish Sea. Step over the level crossing which carries coal to the Fiddler's Ferry power station some distance away and cross the bridge over the first navigable canal, the Sankey Brook Navigation, 1757, and you are indeed in a calmer world, isolated almost, from the stress and bustle of a modern industrial society. Famous, in a manner of speaking, in these parts for at least 200 years is an inn of some repute. The ferry at Penketh could have been the setting for a Dickensian drama in a sepia film, where a young boy meets chained convict bound for Australia on the marsh at night. Many an excellent farewell is recorded in the parish records for the 1860s, was served here, and this certainly holds true today. But be warned, approach this intention with an empty stomach. Many an ill-gotten gain was disposed of here, ideally situated as the inn is to be remote from the long arm of the law based at Prescott. Prize fights of 80 rounds were often staged from here 
under the squat oak tree across the river, still there today, where the locals from Moor and Darsbury and roundabout would collect and defy the law on the Cheshire side of the marsh. Not surprisingly, the Quaker community in Penketh did indeed keep an eye on this den of iniquity, hence the detailed records of the inn. This is the only inn along the river where an ancient law allowed for the keeping of a loaded revolver on the premises for maintaining the peace. As a collecting point for Irish navvies before they were shipped down the river to return home for the harvest with good beer, food and isolation, this law is perhaps not so much a surprise as a necessity. Prescott was some six hours round trip away. The Irish link has not been broken over time moreover. The best selection of Irish whiskies in the UK that I know of is still to be found here, joined by some 150 or so malts and real ales. Some things don't change, thank goodness. And the ancient well, which literally appeared, doesn't seem to have changed for a couple of centuries or more. Did one or two of the navvies not make it further than here, perhaps, and it is their restless spirits that haunt this place and shift things around in the night, blocking stairs and rattling the bottles. Earthquakes? Don't be cynical. This ancient crossing point of the river has witnessed much change since its first recorded date in 1160, when Henry II was still on terms with his friend, Thomas Becket. Even Cromwell's troopers used it to transport artillery across the river to attack Runcorn Castle. And since cannonballs from the Civil War turn up in the bank at low tide every so often, they seem to have had an uncomfortable journey. The low ceilings comfort and a roaring fire on a cold, blustery morning make the hundred-yard battle from the car park against the elemental forces of nature thoroughly worthwhile, however, as you rest, sipping a Middleton's very rare, a cast-strength or wood-finished malt, lulled by the life in the fire. What has been witnessed over time here? Who were the people and the mariners who have been dragged out of the river here and placed in the mortuary adjacent to the building? The link with history is as tangible as the tang of salt air in the brief walk from the realities of modern life. Colin Mason's words, I couldn't have said it better. It's not always idyllic there though. Here's an article from the Warrington Guardian from the 6th of April 2006. Mersey bursts its banks as solar eclipse causes unusually high tides and floods. A solar eclipse caused flooding throughout Warrington on Thursday. The sun and moon were lined up, which gave amateur astronomers in some parts of the world a spectacular view. But the combined gravitational pull produced an unusually high tide which burst the banks of the Mersey in several places between 1 and 2 p.m. Worst hit was the Ferry Tavern pub in Penketh, which is only around 15 feet from the river. Up to four foot of water poured in, the carpets and fittings now need replacing, and the water has made all the plaster peel away. Of course, that was a disaster for all those involved, but not nearly as much as on Wednesday the 10th of April, 
1912, just over a century ago. Again, reading from an article from the Warrington Guardian, this time from the 10th of April 1912. Yachting disaster near Penketh. Two Warrington men lose their lives. Narrow escape of two youths. The boisterous elements on Saturday served to mark Eastertide and the annual boat race of the Warrington Sailing Club by a sad tragedy in which two married men, Walter Warburton of 7 Fairclough Avenue and James Edward Crooks of 41 Lord Nelson Street, lost their lives in the River Mersey, the boat in which they were sailing capsizing. The course of the race was from Cooper's Yard Witness to Banquee, Warrington, and eight boats competed, the Xenia, the property of Mr Warburton, being one of them. The owner was accompanied by his two sons, Walter, aged 14, and John Henry, aged 16, and Mr Crooks. When the starting signal was given, all went well until Zena, which was the scratch boat, got into midstream. The water was very choppy, and half a gale was blowing at the time. Opposite Widnes Marsh, where the Mersey is quite open, Warburton's boat got into difficulties, and it was conjectured by those witnessing the race that the crew had too much sail on. The boom was suddenly seen to snap and the top half of the sail fell into the water. The small craft, which was an 18 feet racing boat, swerved to the right and owing to the weight of the broken mast and sails was dragged over onto one side. Suddenly the boat dived down, stern foremost into the river and disappeared. One of the Warrington competing boats, seeing the helpless condition of the Zena, gallantly threw up their chances in the race and turned back to the rescue. The owner of the ill-fated boat and his eldest son were picked up exhausted and unconscious, while the second son was rescued by a witness boat which had been cruising the vicinity and from which a number of spectators had witnessed the start. The Warrington rescuers conveyed the two elder Warburtons to Fiddler's Ferry, the headquarters of the club, and on the way artificial respiration was resorted to, but the treatment was only successful in the case of the son, the father dying. The boy John was conveyed to the Mersey Hotel witness, where he was brought round. He received every attention, and he was taken home the following day, Sunday, little the worse for his startling escape, although anguished at the loss of his father. The body of the man Crooks was picked up on the foreshore at witness two hours after the accident. The tragedy caused great consternation amongst the witness spectators, of whom there were quite a large number. Mr Warburton had taken part in the races for a number of years and was an experienced yachtsman. The accident was rendered all the more tragic inasmuch as the other boats participating in the race finished the course ignorant of the tragedy that had taken place. Anyway, I'm going to bring this podcast to a close. My throat is starting to burn again. And quite painful, to be honest. Yes, I'm looking for sympathy. So, as I say, I'm going to draw it to a close now. Now that we've had a sonic walk around Penka and Fiddler's Ferry. I 
I'll see you soon, folks. Hopefully, my throat will be better by then, and these constant dizzy spells I keep getting, knocking me sideways into walls, well, I hope they've gone as well. I'm going to leave you then, so I'll talk to you soon.